Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 9. Job's third speech is hard to make much sense of. It seems to lack a consistent focus and direction. And again, we're not surprised by that. Job is a man on fire, and we don't expect measured, rational, linear theology from a person in his situation. We expect running around and waving your hands in the air while shouting incomprehensibly, and that is basically what we have here. John Hartley writes that in these two chapters, Job tends to state a position boldly, then abandon it when he sees its difficulty, and jump to another idea, which is also quickly abandoned. His jumping about reflects his frustration at the lack of any insight into the reasons for his plight, closed quote. So, this speech is disjointed, and filled with emotional hyperbole, which again, is exactly what we would expect. But I think there's more here than just the basic irrationality and circularity of a wounded and disoriented animal. There is that. But I think too, we should see in this something of the courage and resilience of Job's faith. He is not resigning himself to platitudes, as his friends are, and he is not abandoning his belief in a wise and good God, as so many modern thinkers have done. Rather, he is dogged in his pursuit of an answer. Job wants to find a solution to his dilemma that does not remove God from his throne and that does not condemn Job himself as a terrible sinner. Somewhere between those terrible ditches, there must be some kind of a faithful answer. And Job is determined to find it. So he goes down one road, hits a dead end, and he turns around and tries something else. That's what I mean by Job's courage and resilience. Francis Anderson says here, Job's faith is stronger than theirs, referring to the friends, more imaginative and adventurous, and in consequence, more exacting and painful. Job will explore his way into God while the rest merely watch and talk, closed quote. I think that's it exactly. And I think that's one of the intended takeaways of this dialogue. If you're content to rest in platitudes, if you never move beyond proverbial wisdom and prosperity gospel truisms, if your faith could happily fit inside a fortune cookie, then you will never wrestle your way to the truth. And in that sense, suffering can be a gift. It pierces our platitudes and it forces us to think deeply about who God is, who we are, and, and what real salvation and redemption must entail. And that is part of the answer to the question that this dialogue is exploring. It isn't explicit in this speech. But it is there for anyone with eyes to see. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. 
Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? So once again here, we notice that there is no substantial difference in the theological assumptions of Job and his friends. Job understands the universe basically the same way that Eliphaz and Bildad do. Bildad just said, we live in a moral universe presided over by a wise and just God. I agree 100% with that, Job says. But I think there's been some mistake. And then he asks the obvious question. How do you appeal a perceived mistake or a perceived injustice to an infinitely wise and powerful God? How do you even begin that process? And, and who would even dare? I would never be able to stand up under cross-examination. God would overpower me with the sheer force of his presence. And then he goes on to wax eloquent about the power, wisdom, and majesty of God. He basically one-ups Bildad. You're impressed with the greatness of God, Bildad? Well, so am I times a thousand. He says, he who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of his place, and its pillars tremble, who commends the sun, and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, Pallades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? So I'm right with you, Bildad, old buddy, on the majesty and transcendence of God. He's the prime mover. He's the uncaused causer. He is infinitely and unapproachably sovereign. He kills and he makes alive. He wounds and he heals. And there is none who can deliver from his hand. Mark me down as on board with that. I get it. I believe it. I like it. But therein lies my dilemma. Because something bad has happened to me in this wise and well-governed universe. So what am I supposed to do with that? Verse 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I'm in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Now, here, Job comes right up to the line and almost crosses over. In fact, to be honest with you, this is one of the sections in the book that explains why readers are surprised at the end to hear God say that Job did not sin, it sounds like he sins right here. In this paragraph, he basically says that he is innocent and has been wrongly accused. He'd like to appeal the decision, but he knows that God will not listen to his appeal. Job is just a, a little ant in the big universe under God's just and sovereign rule. Why would he care that I perceive my case to have been mishandled? 
Who am I to get God to reverse his decisions? If I made an appeal, I'd be lucky not to be struck by lightning for my impertinence. Therefore, I expect no justice. Okay, well, that sounds a little bit sinful, right? I mean, let's be honest. That sounds a lot sinful. Job just said that you can't get justice in this world. God is too big, too powerful, too overwhelming. His mere presence would evaporate you before you got your first sentence out of your mouth. There can be no justice for tiny little people in the presence of Almighty God. How is that not sinful? I have to believe here that God is grading on a curve, meaning he does not consider Job's assessment to be sinful because Job does not have all the critical factors to enter into his equation. Meaning, Job's tried to run this equation without several key values, and therefore, the fact that he's come up with a wrong answer at the end is being very graciously overlooked. And that in itself proves the lie in Job's conclusion. God is a lot more gentle and forgiving than Job has been led to believe. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Here, Job is talking in circles a little bit. He says basically that you could never put God in the dock. You could never ask him to explain himself. And you could never feel right yourself in his presence. No matter how innocent you felt you were, as soon as you stood next to God in all of his brilliance and perfection, you would feel like a dirty little maggot. Verse 22, it's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Again, as the reader, it's hard to believe that God does not charge Job with sin for saying this stuff. But again, God apparently is being merciful because Job does not have all the information he needs to make sense of his situation. God is being very merciful here, and Job is coming unhinged. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 22 that God treats the wicked and the blameless exactly the same. More than that, he actually says that God mocks the calamity of the innocent and blocks processes of justice. Okay, that, that's not a good thing to say. And yet, God lets it go. Because Job doesn't land there. He, he comes down here in this speech, but he hits this wall and he backs away. No, I will not settle for that answer. He, he, he's like the kid in calculus who runs the equation with the values that he has and writes down an answer that he knows cannot be true. So he runs the equation again and again and again. This is the agony of faith filled questioning. 
That's what I was talking about when I mentioned Job's courage and resilience. He is risking some horrifying conclusions by running this scenario through his little mental computer with all of the available factors. He's, he's running the numbers and he's facing what he sees at the bottom of that equation. <laughs> and you have to go through that to arrive at truth on the other side. The, the wise man of Ecclesiastes, sometimes called the preacher, went through the exact same process. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 3. He says almost the same thing as Job. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. It's all the same, he says. The same things happen to good people and bad people. Bad people get sick and die. Good people get sick and die. Where is the justice in that? Now, if you aren't asking that question, then you aren't dealing honestly with reality. The Christian science people and the prosperity gospel people are not dealing honestly with reality. The founder of the Christian science movement, Mary Baker Eady, she said that she would never get sick. Pain was, you know, just unfaith. Sickness was a delusion. Okay, well, she got sick and died, right? Hello, everyone gets sick and everyone dies. The prosperity gospel nonsense is now just old enough that we are seeing the founders of the movement get sick and die. Hopefully that will pierce some of the silliness associated with that branch of the Christian tree. If you are dealing in reality, you will no doubt have noticed that good people and bad people, real believers and total atheists, all get sick and die. The death rate for prosperity gospel preachers so far stands at exactly 100%. Everybody dies. And wise people notice that and think about that. The preacher did, and Job is doing that right here. And they're not the only ones. You can see this exact process in Psalm 73. Asaph is having the exact same crisis that Job and the preacher are having. He's poor and sick, and he's starting to wonder whether there is any point in being a believer. Because the wicked are all fat, rich, and happy. And here I am, sick as a dog and poor as a church mouse. So what's the point? That's how he was thinking. But then the turn comes in verse 17. He says, I was thinking that way until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In worship, Asaph was reminded that God plays a very long game. He remembered that it is pointless to evaluate matters of justice and fairness on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or even year-to-year -year basis because the wise and just God we all believe in exists in eternity. He plays a very long game, and therefore the key is to look at the end. Sometimes the equation 
isn't squared in space and time. So you've got to look further out. You've got to see beyond the scope of your immediate pain. And that, my friends, is where wisdom leaves off and faith takes over. And Job isn't there yet, but he is wrestling and limping his way forward. Thanks be to God. Verse 25, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering for I know you will not hold me innocent. Here we see more of the honesty, courage, and resiliency of Job. I can't just fake it till I make it. I can't name it and claim it. I'm not going to pretend that I'm living my best life now. My life sucks. So I'm going to say whatever I want to say since it's not going to make a difference anyway. (laughs) Even in his worst moments, you got to love brother Job. Verse 29, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. (laughs) Okay, well, here Job has stumbled on something precious, right? This is why you don't give up. This is why when you hit a dead end, you turn around and try something else in your thinking. Job has just grabbed onto a thread that as he pulls it will lead him toward gospel hope. He says, What if there was someone who could stand between God and me? What if there was someone holy enough to talk to God, but human enough to talk to me? Oh, that would be great, Job says. That might just be the answer, he says. Oh, that there would be an arbiter, a mediator, who might lay his hand on both of us. A hand to God and a hand to man. Oh, that such a one might exist. Job has just taken hold of the golden thread. That is the lifeline that God throws to people dealing honestly with their despair. That is the beginning of a question that will ultimately lead to the answer of Jesus Christ. And here in this speech, we see the end of Job's wisdom and the beginning of of gospel faith. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. 
Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 